Okay, so we're going to go on with uh, Luke chapter 18, and uh, we're going to start with, uh, with a prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus to pray for your blessing upon each of us in all our issues and all the things we have in our lives, and to pray that truly we might follow Jesus in the sense that we might come to understand him, to love him, to trust him, to believe in him, to not just believe he existed, but to trust in him to save us and to give us, in the end, everlasting life. We pray, Father, that you will bless each and every one of us and that you will open our eyes now as we, we read of him, as we read his words, as we think of him, and that you will help those not yet committed to him to make that commitment and encourage those of us who have committed to him to abide in him and with him and for him in every part of our lives. <clears throat> for Jesus' sake. Amen. Right. So, they were bringing to Jesus even their babies that he should touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Permit the little children to come to me, and do not forbid them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall in no way enter into it. <clears throat> so, these, I guess, mothers... Uh, of these babies have the idea that a lot of religious people have that if you touch if the holy man touches my child the child shall be blessed and that, that's in about every religion including Christianity this idea that if, if the, the holy person touches somebody they're going to get blessed well Jesus can do all things he doesn't have to touch you to bless you. We've all been blessed by him, but we've never actually been physically touched by, by his hands. So, for example, <clears throat> when the woman comes behind him, the woman who's bleeding, uh, got a bleeding problem, and she touches his clothes, thinking, if I touch him, I'll get cured. Well, he cures her, but he turns and says to her, your faith is what made you whole. In other words, it wasn't the touch, it was your faith that made you whole. There's another time when a centurion has got a son that's sick. And he sends a message to Jesus saying, can you come and heal my child? And then the guy thinks about it and says, actually you don't need to come. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Okay? So that, and Jesus said, wow, I've never seen such great faith. No, not anywhere. So I think that what it shows is that, yeah, there's levels of faith. There's some people, well, maybe all of us, will think, oh, wouldn't it be great to get physically touched by Jesus? But that guy had a higher level of faith because thinking about it, he said, well, actually, you don't need to come, do you? Just say the word. That's enough. Jesus says the word, oh, and the, 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 the person's healed. So these people were maybe not on the highest level of faith. They thought that if Jesus physically touches my child, the child shall be blessed. And the disciples saw that and they said, oh, you know, no, stop, stop, stop. We don't want a load of babies and, you know, this is not a kindergarten, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, no, 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 let them do this. So you see, as you very often do, when you look at the, the behaviour of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, you see that shh. 
you see that he is willing to accept a lower level of faith and understanding and behaviour than the ideal. And that is something that I most uh, respect about him, that he, he wants people to come to him. He's not saying, look here, this is the level of understanding, this is the level of, uh, of, uh, of belief, of behaviour, and if you can't get over that, that level, well, that's your problem, I'm not here for you, but if you can, well, yes, I'm here for you. He's more proactive, he wants by all means to get people to him. And so he says to them, no, no, let, let, let these women bring their little babies. Yeah, sure, I'll do this for them. And yet he sees in those children, those little, little ones, he sees characteristics that he thinks should go with all those who will be in the kingdom of God. And so he says, do not forbid these little children because to such belongs the kingdom of God. So, you see, what he's saying is that when you hear the gospel of the kingdom, the invitation to come and live forever, he's saying you've got to accept it like a child. Well, in what sense like a child? I would say that the lead characteristic of a child is not, you know, cuteness or whatever, but is trust. That is why abuse of a child is so wrong, because you're abusing that trust, which is naturally in a child. And we're talking about a small child. And it is that trust that he's focusing on. And it's, I don't think he means that, oh yeah, kids are going to get saved, but adults won't get saved. Well, that's too simplistic to read it like that. When he says, let the little children come to me, don't forbid them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Um, I think, no, I don't think he's saying, oh, well, if you're a kid, you're going to get saved, but if you're an adult, well, no, 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 you've got to behave yourself. No, I, you know, because kids can sin. Some children are moral uh, creatures, just as anybody else's. They have a sense of right and wrong, and sin, and obedience, etc. So I think he's saying that whoever will not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will not enter it. That is... You've got to accept that invitation with that childlike trust. Now, why do children, as they grow up, stop trusting? Because they get sceptical, they get cynical, they see that actually you can't trust everybody. Actually, you can't trust most people. And that's our problem, that we encounter this invitation. Do you want to live forever? Do you want to be in the kingdom of God? And it's, it's difficult to have that simple trust in God and in Jesus because we've been let down by so many people. Who can you trust? You can trust anybody. I'm sure that we have all had those words in our minds or come off our lips at some point in our lives. You can't trust anybody. You can't trust anybody. And that is kind of so. You can't trust anybody, it seems, pretty well. Um, but you can trust God and you can trust Jesus because they have never let us down and never will. And so the, the, the simple truth is, God is inviting you to his kingdom, to live forever in his kingdom when Jesus comes back. And if you die now, no worries, you're going to get resurrected. That's the whole symbolism of, of baptism, that you go in the water, that's like death with Jesus. You come out of water, that's like the resurrection of Jesus. And so what he's saying then is that 
If you simply believe that and trust me, like a child, that is what's going to happen, and you will be saved. But the disciples were forbidding them. And this is not the only time when the disciples forbade people. They said, oh, you, you go away. Like when all the crowds were coming to Jesus on a couple of times, they say, go away, go away, go away. You're only interested in the, uh, in the loaves and fishes that he made. And Jesus says, no, no, let, let them come. And so it seems natural within religious people, and the disciples were, if you like, the religious people of the time, to tell people, oh, no, 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 you're not sincere, you, you're not up to it, no, you can't come. People say to me, oh, you, you shouldn't just let anybody come to church in the pub, you shouldn't just let anybody come, whatever. No, 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 let them come. Because we're all like that. Our motivation changes, and, and that's it. As you encounter Jesus, your motivation changes, your thinking changes. So, to be like a child, this is why when you when you're baptised, you're reborn. You become again, well, you are born again. You become a little child. Um, not in the sense of naivety, not in the sense of just being naive and going through life like, you know, you're some naive little kid. No. But in the sense of absolute and total trust, not in men. No, you can trust anyone in the ultimate sense, but trust in, in God and in the Lord Jesus, that if they have promised that you will be saved, all you've got to do is say yes, then you will be. And it is, in one sense, as simple as that. So, <clears throat> having said that, you then get an example of someone who doesn't become like a little child. A certain ruler asked Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are parallel accounts of the same incidents. And to get the whole picture, you have to put them all together. When you read in the other Gospels, it says, A young ruler. Right? So this guy who comes to Jesus is a young guy. And he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you've read anything the Apostle Paul wrote about faith and works and all that stuff, you will be immediately uh, leery now, because Paul says you can't do anything to get eternal life. It is a gift by grace, through faith. And this guy comes and says, what must I do? And I think he has in mind, you know, do I just have to do one heroic act and I shall be saved? Because that was the thinking in Judaism. That's why when the Romans in AD 70, it came against them, these Jewish zealots were thinking, oh, if I like, make a suicide attack on the Roman soldiers and give my life, then for sure I'll be saved. You, you see it. And, you know, suicide bombers and, the, and this kind of thing. But, uh, oh, I've just got to do one great act and you know, then I've got, I'm good. And it's not quite like that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you see, if it was me, I'd have said, well, you can't, mate. You've got to believe. And don't be so up yourself to think that you can uh, do certain good deeds and then you deserve eternal life. You don't. And this is why, you know, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says the wages of sin is death. That you sin and you get paid your wages, which is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So then, it is a gift. It's a, it's a gift. 
it, it's not wages. It's not the result of being good or whatever. It is a gift by grace. Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is none good save one, and that is God. You know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't kill, don't bear false witness on your father and mother. And he said, and you imagine with sort of a big sort of smile on his face, all these things have I observed from my youth. He's a young man. I said if you put all the Gospels together, you see that he's a young guy. That this young man comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, keep these commandments. And he goes, oh yeah, even from a young guy, I've kept those commandments. And you, you see how up himself the guy was. He's a young man. And he says, oh, from a young man, I've, I've kept the commandments. Well, you're still young, mate. Um, it would be different if he was older to say that. So again, our reaction would have been to say, oh, don't be so up yourself, young man. You're just a youngster, and you say, oh, I'm a youngster, I, I've kept all the commandments. You're still young, right? Yeah? But Jesus is very gracious, more gracious than we are. As King David said in the Old Testament, let me fall into the hands of God, but let me not fall into the hands of man. In other words, God is more pitiful, God is more forgiving, God is more gracious than man is. And a lot of people fear that, oh, I'm not good enough, uh, God's standards are too high for me or whatever. They don't get it that actually God is more accepted. God is more forgiving. He's more gracious than human beings are. So, anyway, I've, I've observed all these in my youth. And when Jesus heard it, he said to him, One thing you lack yet, sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When he heard these things, he became exceedingly sorrowful, for he was very rich. So, I think that this is not Jesus saying that every Christian must sell all they've got and give to the poor. I don't think so. For one thing, you don't see any example in the Bible of people literally selling all that they've got and giving to the poor, literally. And also, you, you take Zacchaeus, the, uh, the crooked sort of tax collector. When he repents, he says to Jesus, I'll give half of my goods to the poor. And Jesus says, oh, well done, you're saved. Jesus didn't say, oh, you're only going to give half of what you've got. You're going to give away half of what you've got. Well, that's no good, mate. You've got to give it all. No, he doesn't say that. He says, well done. Salvation has come to you. You are saved. So I think that this was Jesus talking specifically to this particular rich young man. And I think that he's saying, right, you, know, you reckon that... You can get saved by doing good works and you reckon you've done them all and you're so righteous and bright and bushy-tailed. Look, okay then, so then how about this? Why don't you just sell all that you've got and give to the poor? And come follow me. When he heard these things, he was sorrowful because he was very rich. So he's all sort of happy and proud that I'm so righteous and then Jesus says, actually, you're not at all. And as the book of Isaiah says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And yet, you know, in the way of religion is to think that if you're righteous and you've got to dress yourself wonderfully, you look at these great big uh, white gowns that people wear in a lot of churches, 
Uh, like, I'm so holy. Well, no, we are covered in filthy rags, that's what we're told. But, that we can't be good enough, and that's fine. That's fine, because we're going to be saved by our trust, by our faith, not by how we, we think we, we are behaving so well. Not to say that good behaviour doesn't matter, not, not at all. So, <clears throat> he's sad because he was very rich. Jesus, looking at him, said, How hard it shall be for those that have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to enter in through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So, when you read these things, you can ask yourself, well, what should the guy have said? What should he have said? Instead of saying, oh, I can't sell all I've got and give to the four, oh, okay, fine, so I'm not going to follow Jesus, goodbye. What he should have said was, oh, well, well, you know what? (laughs) I haven't got the faith to do that, Jesus. I'm sorry, I can't do that. And what would Jesus have said? Oh, well, clear off then. No, he said, okay, you can't do it, that's fine. But you know what, I love you and I'm going to save you anyway. So these are the questions that you ask as you read the Gospel records. What should he have replied? You know, Jesus gives him a very high thing, says, oh, you think you're so righteous? Okay, well, sell all you've got and give to the poor. And the guy goes, oh, really? Okay, goodbye, and he walks away. You know, what should he have said? He should have said, oh, sorry, I can't do that. No, I, I, I can't get to your level, but would you save me anyway? You know, and Jesus for sure would have said, yes, absolutely. So he says it's easier for a camel to pass through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So in those days they had uh, big walls around their towns. And the, the, the walls were, were high, of course, and there was a gate in the, uh, in, the, in the wall, of course. And yet within that gate, there was a little gate. That was called the needle's eye. So the big gate was open so that camels could go through it. But the, what was called the needle's eye was a little gate just for pedestrians, just for people. So... For a camel to get through the little gate that was made just for people, pedestrians, to walk through, the camel would have had to get down on his knees, have all the goods that were on his humps taken off him, and even then he could only just squeeze through. So you see how relevant this is. Jesus is saying that... If you've got riches, you're like a camel that's got all this stuff, all these possessions on his humps. And it's very difficult for you to pass through the needle gate. You are going to have to humble yourself, like the camel would have to get on its knees, have all its wealth taken, all the goods taken off it, and somehow squeeze himself through the little gate. Now, everyone seems to want to be rich. You know? Everyone thinks, oh, wouldn't it be great to have that brand new iPhone, that brand new car, that beautiful apartment, that flash holiday, that 
those designer clothes or whatever it might be. And that, quite honestly, is walking down Croydon High Street here, that is clearly what makes people tick. Because people are look window shopping, they're looking here, they're looking there, oh, isn't that cool, isn't that smart? Oh, my cousin's got one of those. Oh, my best friend's got one of those. Oh, wouldn't that be cool to have that? And they sit down in Costa there and have a coffee and chat about all these things. Oh, I liked that iPhone, or I like that, whatever it is, the latest thing to have. And that seems natural to human beings to want all that stuff. But if you get it, you are like the camel that has got more and more stuff on its humps. And it's harder for you to get through that needle gate. And so it is not surprising that those whom God calls to be in his kingdom are either not very wealthy or they find that their wealth is taken away from them. Why? Because he wants you to be in his kingdom. And that's why, you know, that's just how it goes. You look at genuine Christians. I don't mean people who go to church. I mean those who are genuine And very often that's the case, that they are either not wealthy or they used to be wealthy, but they are not now. So you see, in my opinion, the total contradiction between his teaching here and what is called the prosperity gospel. That God wants you to be wealthy. Come to our church, you'll get blessed. You'll you'll become a millionaire. You'll become really wealthy. Oh, really? Why would I want that? Oh, because it's cool. Because, oh, yeah, well, wouldn't it be great? You want to be rich? Who wants to be rich? Because how hard it will be for those that have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for the camel to go through the needle's eye, the little gate for pedestrians, than it is for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I said that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are are parallel accounts of the same incidents. And yet, when you put them together, you see just slight, not contradictions, but slight changes, different perspectives. Just as if I asked each of you to write down uh, what I've been saying for the last ten minutes. None of you would lie. You would all write your thing. And yet, if you put them together... You'd find that one person remembered this, one person remembered that, etc. And you'd have to put them all the accounts together to get a full picture. So when you look at what the other gospel says, it says slightly differently. That Jesus said how hard it will be for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it will be for those who trust in riches. Here, Luke says, he said, how hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom. So what did he say? I suggest he said something like, how hard it will be for those who have riches, that is, those who trust in riches, to enter the kingdom. So, to have wealth is to trust in it, I'm afraid. Because if you have got a big bank balance... If you have got a load of cash stashed away, you are going to trust in that. I am invincible. I have got cash behind me. I'm afraid that's how it is. 
And what does God want? He wants us to trust in him. This, you see, connects with the previous incident about the children. That we are to trust like children trust. And if you've got all this, all this wealth, that militates against that kind of basic trust. And they heard it said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, oh, it's really hard for rich people to be saved. And I'm like, wow, who's going to be saved then? In other words, they were so primitive and so simple in their faith that they thought, well, surely rich people get saved, right? Because money can buy you anything, right? Money could buy you salvation. Now, why off? And Jesus says the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Well, who can be saved? Well, you know, they got it so wrong. Oh, wow, so even rich people can't be saved. You can't buy salvation. Oh, wow. And of course you can't. Can you imagine coming to the day of judgment and there you are meeting the Lord Jesus and you're like, and you know, your sins and your righteousness and all that, and oh wow, this is eternal life in front of me. Uh, and you say, oh, oh, whoops, I sinned. You know what, Jesus, I've actually got some, uh, some money that my granny left me. It's about 50,000 quid. Would you like it? I mean, hello? You know? No, obviously not. What's that got to do with anything? But he says the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And you wonder why he says that. I think he's saying, yeah, it's impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, through the uh, needle gate. Okay, that's impossible, but what is impossible with men is possible with God. And I think what he may be saying in this context is, you know what, even the wealthy person, yeah, if you've got wealth... You can't really be saved, but don't worry, I so love those wealthy people with their wealth that I'll save them as well. I think in the context, that's why he says that. And again, you see his grace. You see his grace that, yeah, the young guy can't give up his wealth, and yet Jesus is saying that what's impossible with men, I know it's pretty well impossible what I'm asking you to do, to sell all you've got and give to the poor, but anyway, I will save you anyway. And Peter said, we have left our own and followed you. Well, was that true? Peter had a, you could say, a small fishing business on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he also had a wife, because we're told that his wife travelled around with him. And yet Peter says, we left everything and followed you. Well, Peter, when when Jesus dies and he's crucified and before they've seen him resurrected, it's Peter who says to the disciples, "Let's, let's go back to our fishing business. So he hadn't totally ditched his fishing business. He hadn't ditched his wife. But he says, oh, we left everything. And again, yeah, if it was me, I'd have said to Peter, hold on, Pete, you, you didn't leave your wife, did you? And you still got your fishing business back up there in Galilee, right? 
He didn't leave everything, that Jesus is so gracious. He doesn't make the obvious observation, the obvious criticism. Just Jesus says to them, but well, okay, so you say, but truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, wife, brothers, parents, children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive many times more than this time, and in the age to come eternal life. Well, in a funny way, pretty well all of us here who are believers have done that. Because you may think, well, why am I single, or why am I divorced, or why am I uh, not very wealthy? The world would say, ah, because of bad luck, or uh, this, or that, or the other. You know, probably the reason for why, let's say, someone is like that is actually because of their even unconscious, subconscious decision-making. Why are you single? Well, because this one or that one didn't fit spiritually. He, she, wasn't really a believer. And sunning in me, my moral conscience held me back. Why aren't you super-duper wealthy? Because it's not actually what you wanted. Yeah, everyone would say, oh, I'm not against. No, you will not be against it. If you win the lottery, get the magic lottery ticket, you're not going to tear it up and chuck it away and say, I don't want that. Um, But by the same token, you are also not out to get wealthy. Why aren't you? Because you are a Christian. Because you are a Christian. And so... There is nobody who has left, as he says, relationships, let's say, or material things for the kingdom of God's sake, who were not received many times more. And also in the age to come, eternal life. Now, this is not to say that you can buy your way to eternal life, but I think what it does show is that there is some sort of recompense between what you sacrifice now and what you will eternally experience. For example, Jesus says to that rich young man, sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. It's as if if you give a hundred quid to the poor, the hundred quid becomes treasure in heaven. It's as if you've done a bank transfer upstairs. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure, not down here anymore, because you sold it and you're minus, you've given it away, but you'll have treasure up there. So how we will eternally be is a reflection of what we have sacrificed now. I think of people who have become Christians, and their partner at that time was not, may have been strongly opposed, may have been in another religion, and divorces them, breaks their life up, and you think, oh, that poor person lived the rest of their life suffering because of that. Okay, but that was their life experience, but they will have an eternal, an eternal uh, consequence for that. So it's not just that we're going to have eternal life, the question is, what will that eternal life be like? Well, What it will be like is a reflection of how we have lived now. You know? How much treasure are you going to have in your hands forever? How much spending money are you going to have for eternity, as it were? Uh, Well, that depends how much you, you transferred up to heaven in this life. Now, all this stuff is not simply an appeal to the wealthy, 
to be generous. We have all got something. We cannot say, oh, I've got nothing. Maybe you don't have a single penny, literally. That's okay. But we have all got things that we can give up. It may be your time. It may be your patience with irritating people. And those sacrifices, as, as again the Psalms say, God will not forget your sacrifices. He does not forget them. Well, of course, above all things, you see this in the Lord Jesus, that he is going to be the, the king of the kingdom because in this life he was the most humble. So he lived a life that was second by second, really, hour by hour, giving and sacrificing. And his final death on the cross was really the summation of a life lived like that. It was not one special out-of-character act that he did, some dramatic self-sacrifice at the end, uh, but it was the, the summation of how he had lived, moment by moment, in his life. So, when we take this, we show that I want to be part of his body. When we take the cup, we show that I want to be, to have his life, and the blood represents the life, I want to have his life living in me. And the great thing is to, to take all this in trust. As I said, the lead characteristic of the child is trust. That we simply trust that, yes, he died and he rose again. And because of that, my eternity in his kingdom is 100% absolutely certain. So let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son and for his body and for his blood that we see in symbol here. And we really pray that we might be part of him and that we will live forever with him in his kingdom. For his sake. Amen. So if anyone would like to come back and be baptised, um, come and talk to me on the beautiful weather. Even tomorrow or Friday we could drive out somewhere nice and do it in Beckenham Place Park in the lake or uh, in the river. Or a nice warm, uh, warm bathtub. So let's give thanks for, for the food. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the food that Cindy's prepared for us. We pray, Father, that you'll bless each of us in our lives and that uh, truly all these wonderful things will be true for each of us in our own little ways and that we might trust in you and in your dear Son for all things, but above all, for everlasting life, which is all our hope and all our desire, for his sake. Amen.